So I wanted to um, – the, the stuff that we're going to cover tonight, I wish we had more time. I wish I had more time myself to get into some of these things because, I mean, it is loaded, loaded, loaded. So um, just depending on where we go with this, if there's some things you guys want to dig into a little bit more, I'd be more than happy to do that. Um, because, like I said, you're going to realize once we get into this how, how loaded this really is. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles or open your Bibles to, for those that are more literal, uh, Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. So we're talking about Laodicea, and we are on characteristic number 2. So we um, decided a few weeks ago amongst you guys that you guys want to do a study on Laodicea and really understanding the spirit of the age that we live in. And that's why we call this understanding and undoing the spirit of the age. Because this is the age right before what? The rapture of the church. And then that begins the continuation of? <laughs> yes, yes, the destruction of the planet. Yes. What specifically? Out of Daniel. <laughs> the tribulation. The 70-week prophecy. Yes, so you have Daniel's 70-week prophecy. And we are in the parenthesis between the 69th week and the 70th week. The 70th week is the last seven-year period of Daniel's 70-week prophecy out of Daniel chapter 9. And so the, the, the start of that week is going to begin with not just the rapture of the church, but it's actually going to be signing of the peace treaty with the Antichrist with Israel. So once that happens, that begins God's clock on the final seven years prior to Christ coming back at his second coming and ruling and reigning uh, from the throne in Jerusalem. So uh, we are in that last church period, and we talked about how Revelation 2 and 3 gives us seven periods of church history, beginning with Ephesus, which began approximately 90 AD, and then you work your way through each church period, and you line those details up with history, and it's just amazing the things that you learn from that. And what I love about that alone is, and I shared this with you a couple weeks ago, but in my mind, whenever I, because before I knew this, I went to a good Bible preaching church, but the way that I saw it was like, okay, you have all the details written from Genesis 1 all the way up to when Jesus rose again and ascended up into heaven. You have his disciples, and then it's almost like you have a void of nothing until Revelation. And that's kind of how my understanding was with the Bible, and that's not true. Because Revelation 2 and 3 gives you the history of what takes place after the apostles all the way through church history up to the beginning of the tribulation. And so it's really neat to see that our Bible actually contains the timeline of human history. It gives you everything and it details everything that you need to know from the very beginning all the way to the very end. And so I love that. And that's why God says he is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And so his book would make sense if his book was the beginning and the end as well of human history. So I think that's kind of cool. All right. So we talked about that. And then that brought us to the, the letter to the Laodiceans in chapter 3. And it begins in verse 14. And we're going to focus just on verse 14. Uh, but the big thing that we covered over the last two Wednesdays was, you know, we went through the characteristics and everything, but I wanted to spend some extra time, and that's what we did last week, talking about verse 17, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. So beginning in 18, Jesus starts to give you and I these are the things that you need to do. If you want to overcome the spirit of this Laodicean age, you have to do these particular things. And you got to know right up front in verse 17, you think that you're fine when you're not. You think that you're fruitful when you're not. And I would really challenge you on this because 
Some of you, you might be in the Bible every day. You might even evangelize every day. And because you do those things, or maybe once a month or once a week, I don't know. And you think maybe because you come to church on Sundays, minimum, or you come to church Sundays and Wednesdays, that makes you a good Christian. You are wrong. We have this mentality in us as Laodiceans that, well, if I just do these things, then I'm okay and I'll be fine. And that's not true because we're Laodiceans. It says that you and I, we say... I'm rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Now, what that would mean is, well, let me just ask you this question. How do you struggle with walking with God on a daily basis? Like consistently on a daily basis? Be honest. Okay, you, you, have, you, have, you have a hard time getting in your Bible every day. You have a hard time praying to God every day. You have a hard time uh, when it comes to opportunities to, to minister to God by witnessing to your friends. When those doors open up, you don't walk through them. Um, that you tend to maybe not come to church because you think other Christians are going to be judgmental of you and because of your disobedience. I mean, there's a whole sorts of list that we could just make right now. Okay, so that, that list that defines you, that's because you're a Laodicean. And just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean that I'm exempt from this. There are weeks that I struggle with getting my Bible every single day. And that's crazy. Now, most weeks I get my Bible every single day. Most weeks, I do. But do I get into it like meaningfully or do I do it because it's my job? So none of us are exempt from this. We all are Laodiceans and we can have a mindset. Well, at least I'm better than that person or at least I'm walking with God better than that person. Okay, no, no, no. That's not it at all. Because we say that we're rich and increase the goods and have need of nothing. You know that you have need of something when it's part of your everyday life. Do you need water? Have you ever gone a day without water? All the time. <laughs> Isn't it terrible? <laughs> I mean, drinking anything. Have any of you guys gone like a day without food and you get super hungry on certain things or maybe a couple days without food? Like there are certain things that your body needs. Like you need water. I mean, what's the limit for going without water? Like two days? No, I think it's two weeks. Two weeks? And you start to go schizo? Crazy? Yeah, so water, I would say water is, is a lot less than food yes. for sure. So with water, you go three, four days. I mean, and you get to a certain point where you've not had water for so long. And then even if your body does get water, you're still going to die because your body's not used to processing water. I mean, that's how things can get. And so take that on a spiritual level. Take it on a spiritual level. If we need water, which water is a picture of what in the Bible? The word of God, truth, the spirit of God. So if you can go two or three or four days without spending time in God's word, then you are, I mean, grossly and grossly sick spiritually. It's not possible. If physically it's not possible for you to go three, four days without water and keep living biologically, I mean, look at it spiritually. It's the same way. It's the exact same way. And we get to the point where we think we're okay when we're really not. And that's a huge problem that we have. And so he says, because you say this and you don't know your actual state, here's what you need to do. I counsel you to buy me gold, buy white raiment, so that way you're not naked walking around looking like a crazy person that no one wants to be with. And then anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. You need to be able to see properly. And so we spent some time last week really diving into that, which we won't tonight. So if you want to, please do go back to last week's podcast and listen to that because it gets into all of those details. All right. 
So here's what we're going to do. Every week when we cover a characteristic, I would like to end it with, okay, how are we going to buy gold? How are we going to buy white raiment? And how are we going to anoint our eyes with ISAP? But we got to talk about the characteristic. So the first thing is this. Last week we talked about the Laodicea, and the week before that we talked about Laodicea and how that means what? What does it mean? What does Laodicea mean? My personal rights, civil rights. And so we live in a day and an age where how dare you rain on my parade because this is what I believe. This is my truth. I mean, I have heard that so much. It is ridiculous. So we're going to talk about that a little bit tonight. But you don't have the right to tell me how to live. You don't have the right to tell me how dare you. And it's just getting crazier and crazier and crazier and crazier. So we talked about that, that that's a plague within our church age. And then this week, we're going to look at verse 14, and we're going to see how this characteristic is submission to the truth and how we do not want to submit to the truth. Even when it's staring us in the face, even when we hear it on a Sunday or a Wednesday when we open up our Bible, we do not want to submit to the truth. There's something inside of us, the spirit of the age, that we do not want to humble ourselves and tell God, you are right and I am wrong and do something about it. It's crazy. And that's why I believe that our churches and at times our youth ministries in the state that it's in, because we don't want to submit. We do not want to tell God he's right. We do not want to obey. And God will not make us obey. He won't. He will not make you obey. He wants you to, and you'll be disciplined if you don't. But that's something that's deep inside of us. And it's a huge problem. You've got to learn how to overcome it. Okay, so verse 14. So the Lord Jesus Christ opens up this letter the Laodicean church by introducing himself very specifically. So let's read verse 14, all right? In fact, let's read it together. Ready? Here we go. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things saith the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Okay. So Jesus is speaking here. It's him that's speaking at the beginning of every letter in Revelation 2 and 3. And he specifically calls himself three things. What are they? The first thing is the amen. The second thing is the faithful and true witness. And the third thing is the beginning of the creation of God. So there are three things here specifically that he calls himself. And the reason why he brings us into the introduction is because these are three things that we fight against as a whole in this world during this age and as a church and as individual believers. We fight against the fact that Jesus is the amen, which is what's another word for What does amen stand for? It's true. It's true. Like you're verifying that it's true. So he is true and it's verified. He is the faithful and true witness, which means that he does not lie. What he speaks is true. And he is the beginning of the creation of God. So we're going to talk about this. All right. So from Christ's first description of himself and being observant to the events of recent and current history, there are three specific things that are countering the work of the Lord during this church age and producing lukewarm Christians faster than anything else. So, all right, here's the three things. First of all, the concept of absolute truth. So this is the first thing that's going to destroy us versus philosophy. Philosophy. So it's absolute truth versus philosophy is your first point. Philosophy and philosophical thinking really, I mean, it's been around for a long time. It originated back with the Greeks. And you can even read in, in the book of Acts where Paul went to the uh, went to Mars Hill and he was you know, debating with all the other philosophers and they wanted to, they didn't anything, they didn't do anything else but to hear and to tell of any new thing. And, and he really didn't get anywhere with those guys. But philosophy has been around for a long time. So the seeds of philosophy have been sown a long time ago, but really it has not been until the late 1800s, early 1900s, that philosophy really started to kick into high gear. 
And then it really started to pick up steam in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s and the 50s. And then today it's just, I mean, it's running rampant all around us. Philosophy, philosophy. And so when we talk about philosophy, there's some things that we need to know. So first of all, philosophy is the opposite of absolute truth. And if you've ever taken a philosophy course, have any of you guys ever taken a philosophy course? All right, there's a few. History a little. History, yeah. <laughs> yeah, stupid questions like that. It's ridiculous. I mean, if you've ever taken a philosophy course, what is the whole goal of philosophers? Yeah, convince you of what they believe. But a lot of it is finding out the reason why they're alive. I mean, a lot of it is. They go back and they start to think in ways, and it can be very, very complicated, but it goes back to the origin of life, my purpose. And really, the argument of what truth is is very philosophical, very, very philosophical. And, um, and just the whole concept of absolute truth versus and – I, and I could have put relativism or relative truth as the absolute, which is the true opposite. But I want to do philosophy because that's the giant that's coming against absolute truth. What is relevant, relativism? Did I even say that right? Relev – whatever. Yes, that one. <laughs> I can't even say it right. What is that? What? It compares, like, it's a scale. Yeah. So there's no, yeah. And you see this all the time. Like, even some of the stuff we talked about over the last couple of weeks of, like, gender issues that are going on today. You know what they say? That you're neither male or female. What are you? You can choose what you are. But they, they use a term non-binary. But then they say, what does that mean? And they say, well, it's a scale. There are degrees of being either male or female, and so there's really no – you can't pin them down on anything. And if you can't pin them down on anything, then there's no standards for anything. So that's why we're moving from a society – and you guys see this all the time, especially those of you that go to public school or even going on to college campuses. There's no longer concepts of male and female anymore. I mean that is a perfect example of absolute truth. You either male – or you're female, to now there is this spectrum, there's this gender spectrum that you can be somewhere over here or somewhere over here or somewhere over here or somewhere over here. And this line of thinking has really affected churches. I mean, think about it. How has this line of thinking affected churches? Absolute truth. There's no absolute truth. There's nothing that we can go to that we can be 100% sure that this is our standard for truth and that's why we operate by those things. The churches, that doesn't exist anymore. Why is that? And why do people want that? Come on, let's think a little bit. I speak a lot. Jack. I feel like people think that, like, they're left out if, if they think that they're pansexual or something. Okay. Like they, don't, they don't take a specific gender. And they think, well, we're something. Okay. That's interesting. Aaron next door. He's being weird. Yeah. Go ahead. They're more in the business of let's see how big we can get, let's see how many people we can have, and stuff like that. And so they just completely avoid the issues, and everything's okay because it's all just people are numbers to them. Yes. And so those people feel welcome to, at churches like that, but it creates to where those churches are now not speaking truth or anything because they're more about numbers, and so yeah. those people will go there, but they will not yeah. attend a church like us because they get offended or they don't. It's not that they don't feel welcome necessarily because. 
we would love them and stuff, but we would tell them that they're wrong. Yeah. And just say, look, absolute truth, you're yeah. wrong. Now, we're going to love you anyway, but yeah. you are sinning, and you should correct that. Yeah. What people want to hear. Yeah. Because success is based on what? Money. Money and numbers. People. I mean, people and the money that you're bringing in. That's really it. I mean, so you have this, you have two lines of thinking here. You've got uh, church one. Church one, that success is based on the money that you bring in because the more money you have, the more people you can reach. That's what they think. And then the people that you have. So if you have those two things, then your church is going to be successful. And from a worldly perspective, doesn't that make sense? I mean, from a marketing perspective, if you have money, you can reach more people. If you have more people that are going to go out there and get into the community, you're going to be able to get more done. So it makes sense from a worldly perspective, from a philosophical perspective. However, church two, which would be us, FBCJ, what is our definition of success? What is our absolute truth for success? The Bible. So I can't make this any more simple than this. Because the Bible says, we're in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, what are we supposed to do? Go, which means we need to be equipped to go and do the work. So 2 Timothy 2, 2, you got Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Uh, you got John 17, where he sends out his disciples, that we are supposed to be equipped to go out and do the work so we can get the gospel out there. That is our sole mission. That's all we're supposed to do, because that is what the Bible says. Now, what people have done is that they have exchanged a lot of churches, and we're not a perfect church by any means, but we do honor the Bible, and we love the Bible, and the moment that we let go of the Bible at our church, run. Seriously, I'm, I'm dead serious. I will be out of here, hopefully, if my senses are about me. So what they've done is that they've exchanged the Bible for this, because instead of doing what the Bible says, now they're like, okay, well, we have this mission, and so this mission that we have from the Bible is that we're supposed to get the gospel out. We can't get the gospel out without money or people. So if we don't have money, if we don't have people, then we're not going to be able to get the gospel out, which means we can't obey the Bible. That's what this church says, and that's how they cloak this. And the problem is, in order to get money and get people in this world, in this age, what do you need to do? You need to be like the world. Especially if you have a short amount of time to get the job done and not look like a failure. So you're going to have to compromise somehow. And this all goes all the way back to concepts like, my gosh, we can get into church history, we can talk about Constantine. This is what Constantine did when he took over the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was flooded with pagans. And yet he himself called himself a Christian and then he saw some vision up in the sky which he thought it was God or thought it was Jesus or whatever. And that's his conversion experience when he became a Christian. And so when he decided, okay, this is how I'm going to conquer, apparently, because that's what this vision had told me. And so now I conquer in the name of God, in the name of Christ. Now I'm bringing Christianity and I'm going to take it across the entire Roman Empire. Well, how in the world is he going to do that? The only way that he was able to do that was to take the pagan things and make them Christian. That's all he was able to do. Because he had to make pagans feel like they could fit into Christianity. And so there was nothing left but compromise. And this is what we do. Because sometimes we think that in order for us to function in this world, we have to compromise. Right? Don't we? Like, if we're going to have friends, we've got to compromise. If we're going to give someone the gospel, we've got to compromise. Because how can we get into their circle without compromising? This is where the whole concept of, of guys that are willing to go out and start social drinking because they're drinking in bars because they want to relate to the lost world in order to give them the gospel. Sounds good in theory, 
But the problem is, is it's going to take you way off course. Did Jesus ever do any of that? No. When God himself came, he came and he lived a standard, according to God's standards, final authority life. And you know what happened? What what were people's reactions to Jesus? They crucified him. So there are people that hated him. They wanted him dead. But then there are people that, that loved him. See, when you take a stand for truth, this is what it's like. All right. This is weird, but I'm going to try it anyway. All right. So, all right. Here's my standard. I'm going to walk to the back of that room, and I'm not going to move. I'm not going to compromise. Uncomfortable a little bit? Yeah. Some of you that are weirdos think you're fine. Yeah. Okay, but that's like what it's like. You know what I mean? When you say, I'm taking a stand here, regardless of anybody else, that's what I'm going to do. And it makes the people around you comfortable. And I could have irritated a lot of people on my way out, right? I could have done that. So that's the problem that we face is that when you say that you have a final authority, when you say that you have an absolute truth, that's the kind of life you're living as a Christian. But what happens is, most of us, we do this. I'm a Christian. I love God. The Bible's my final authority. And I'm... just going to go this way. Because I don't want to disrupt anybody. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> and we start going that route, rather than doing what God told us to do. Regardless of what makes people comfortable or uncomfortable. Because it's God that we're trying to please here. Because he gave us our mission. We're not here to please people. We're here to please God. And we don't like that. We don't like that. So go to John 14. Go to John 14. And this is why Jesus started his first title off as the Amen. He is the Amen. He is the truth. And this is a concept that a lot of Christians, and definitely lost people, but Christians do not like they do not like this some of them specifically or i mean i think of uh oh what's his face um rob bell i think rob bell right off the bat because he's a guy who you know he may have started off with good intentions and actually following the gospel but now he is way off he now believes in a doctrine that there is no literal hell that god when he died for everybody everybody's gonna go to heaven eventually and it's terrible he's heretic now because he's compromised and he's just gone with the flow of everything else so, look at John 14. John 14. I love this verse. There is not a, a more simple verse in the Bible to explain this. Jesus saith unto him, I am the, what is it? Amen. Way, the truth. truth, and the, Love. no man cometh unto the Father but by me. So, he is the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That is pretty exclusive. Like, there's no other way around it. Did people like that? Some didn't. And some submitted themselves to that truth. Well, if you're the only way, then you're it. And I have to submit myself to you. That's what they did. And those that didn't like it, they wanted him dead. Because in wanting him dead, they could get him out of the way. But the problem is, is that you can't ever get Jesus out of the way. 
Because at some point, you're going to have to face him face to face. At some point. People can dismiss Jesus all day long, but the moment they die, they will see him face to face and they're going to give an account for it. So pretend all you want, but what is the truth? Absolute truth. And that's what we're faced with. People either are following absolute truth or they're following philosophy. Colossians 2.8, you can read that later. It talks about, it says, beware of philosophy and the traditions of men, the rudiments of this world. And this is exactly what the devil said in Genesis 3.1. Yea, have God said, did God really say that? Did he actually say that? Yes, he did. He did. You need to go back. You need to know your Bible. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So do you believe and live according to absolute truth? Because if you do, you're going to ruffle some people's feathers. And they're not really going to like you. But you know what? <clears throat> and this is something that's part of my testimony. Because at times, I, I mean, I'm a people pleaser. It's part of me where I don't like to make people upset. And so this is something I've struggled with my whole life. But there are certain things that I stood very firm on in high school. And, uh, and it really made a difference for some people. Um, things I didn't even know. Like back in high school, Aaron Stanley um, was lost at the time. Doing drugs, partying, hanging out with the wrong crowd. He was about two, three years ahead of me, something like that. And he said, and this is crazy, you can ask him about it, but he said it was his goal in high school that he found the Christians out that said that they were Christians, and it was his job, his goal, to corrupt them. He wanted to get them out at a party and get them drunk, get them high, get them doing things so that he could turn around and mock them and call them hypocrites. That was, that's what he did as a lost guy. I mean, that's evil. <laughs> that's flat-out evil, but that's what he did. And he didn't tell me this until about maybe a year or two years ago. He said, there were two guys in high school that I knew were the real deal, and I just stayed away from them. He's like, and one of them was you. I'm like, what? I'm like, I don't even remember him in high school. But that would have made him a senior, and I was a sophomore. And yet the way that I lived my life made an impact with him. And he's like, no, I, I never, I knew I wasn't going to mess with you. He's like, there was something about you that was different, and I knew that you were the real deal, and I just, I respected you. I'm like, are you kidding me? Yes. That's how this works. Do you realize that if you decide to be a man or a woman of character that loves God and does what God says, people may, may make fun of you to their face, but deep down they really respect you. They really do. They'll never say it. And maybe it will take them getting saved one day for them to say, hey, you remember, like Heron Stanley, I, I really respected you. I'm like, oh my. And see, I didn't feel like I was living that much of a strong Christian life at that time. But there are certain things I knew I wasn't going to compromise with. So that's just interesting. So do you live according to absolute truth? We don't want to in our day and age. All right, so the second one kind of goes with it. All right, so this concept, oh, people hate this, especially other Christians. They hate this one. The Bible is the source of absolute truth. And here's your blank versus textual criticism. Textual criticism. So number one, they don't want to necessarily believe in absolute truth. And they say, well, what does the Bible mean to you? Or, yeah, many roads can lead to heaven. Or, yeah, the Bible talks about hell, but it's not literal. Or, yeah, the Genesis account of creation is not literal. It's totally figurative. Those sorts of people that do not believe in absolute truth are similarly the types of people that do not believe that the Bible is the source of absolute truth. Therefore, they are heavy into textual criticism. Now, what is textual criticism? Just look at the word if you don't know the definition and think about it. Textual criticism. Criticizing the Bible. Yes, criticizing the Bible, which means, give me an example. Yeah, Jack. When somebody says um, that the Bible contradicts itself. Yes. Jesus turned water to wine. 
Yes. All versions are the same when they're clearly not. Yes. Yes. Yep. Yes, the Bible's a metaphor. Yep. Yes, they believe the Bible is written by men. That's huge. That's one of the big, big foundational pieces of textual criticism. Anybody else? Yes. So you can believe two different things about the same passage. Absolutely. Other things like, yeah, Paul didn't really write Philippians, you know, or John didn't really write John, or yeah, they say Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, but he didn't actually write those ones. It was written by somebody else. Or there's this theory, and I forget the name of the theory. It's probably a good thing that I forget. Uh, oh, it's like the Synoptic Gospels. If you ever heard anything like that, it's called the Synoptic Gospels, where they believe that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are so similar on so many different accounts that there had to have been another text that they all copied from. And that text is called Text Q. And so they took bits and pieces of it. And yeah, John's the anomaly, but it still contains some of those things. So he referenced it, but his was written much later in the timeline. So, But Matthew, Mark, and Luke are so similar in their accounts that there's no way that they could be written from three independent people about the same accounts. Okay? And so there had to have been Q. But does Q exist? No, Q does not exist. They have yet to find Q, and they will not find Q because it is not true. So that is sexual criticism. They criticize the Bible and they break it apart so that way people will not believe what the Bible says. And generally, generally, not all the time, but generally these people will not use the English standard of their Bible, the English, English version of their Bible in order to study and to understand the Bible. They will go back to the Greek and to the Hebrew in order to understand their Bible. Generally, not all the time, but generally they will do that. And they do that because they say, well, you know, it was originally written in Hebrew and in Greek, and but now what we have is English, which has nothing to do with those languages. And so when it was translated over from Hebrew and Greek into English, there's some things that were missing and the tenses and the verbiage. And I mean, even when you look at different tenses of, of, of just how phrases are even worded back in Greek and Hebrew, it doesn't match over perfectly. So they had to go in and they had to change some things around in order to give you your English one so it could read and it could flow well together. So you got to go back to the Greek and to the Hebrew in order to understand your Bible. That's what they say. Yeah. What about the whole Shakespeare thing? What about Shakespeare? They say that, but it's not true. Yeah, that's not true. Yeah. So, but that's the argument, which, thinking logically, doesn't that make sense? I mean, if you're going to use logic, don't use faith for a second. I know it sounds weird for me to say that. Don't use faith for a second. Use logic. Doesn't that make sense? Because it did to me. When I was in high school and I started uncovering some of these things, that made sense to me. So I couldn't really know my Bible unless I knew Greek and Hebrew. And so then what I began to do because of that is that I began to go to other men who were smarter than I was, who had degrees by their names, who created their own study Bibles. And I would read the Bible and then I would read their footnotes. Well, what did they say? What did they say that what this passage means? Because I need to know what they say because they're a lot smarter than me. And so I'm trusting them instead of trusting my Bible. Do you see the fallacy here? Okay. So textual criticism, all that it has done is it has removed the Bible, and say, yeah, you can't understand it. Why do you even have one? doesn't matter. I'll just tell you what it says, and then you can just believe me. Does that make any sense whatsoever? Would God do that to you? Would he love you enough to die for you, purchase your redemption, pen his Bible, have men and women die throughout the centuries? I mean, your Bible is bloodstained because of the sacrifice men and women, uh, they gave their lives and their families in order to preserve the Bible for you. 
to, to just all of a sudden, oh, no, you don't need it anymore. You can just trust these guys. Makes no sense. Yeah, exactly. Because Catholics didn't want people to read their Bible. Because if people started reading their Bible, they'll actually find out that what they're doing is not biblical. Okay. So that's why in a lot of churches today, they do not want their people to be discipled. They do not want their people to know what the Bible says because if their people know what their Bible says, now they, as the clergy, are held more accountable and they could be wrong on some things and they could be upstaged. See, at our church, we want you to be discipled. We want you to know what the Bible says because we need to be doing our job. It's not about, it's not my show, it's not Tom's show, it's not Jay's show, it's God's show, and we're stewards, and we have been commanded to feed the flock and to train you guys to go and do the work. How can you go and do the work if you don't know your Bible? It's impossible. So textual criticism is straight out of the pit of hell from the devil himself to destroy the confidence in the scriptures so that way you cannot be confident that every word that you read is actually God's word. In a nutshell. In a nutshell. Because God said that he would keep it. Let's go to Psalm. Psalm 12. Psalm 12. Psalm 12. Psalm 12, someone read 6 and 7. 6 and 7. Go ahead, Sam. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Okay. So God's words will be kept and preserved from that generation forever. Very clear, very simple. God would not inspire his word and then not keep it preserved. That is ridiculous. That is the most insane thing that I have ever heard in my life. Why would God take the time to give you his words, inspire the holy scriptures and then not keep it intact for you to read as his children. I mean, I would believe that God would move heaven and earth to keep his Bible intact. I mean, that makes sense to me. If God would go through the time to choose the venue of the written word to give you all of the truth you need to know from the beginning to the end of human history, if he would take the time and put it in this vehicle, why would he not keep it intact for you to know it he absolutely would and he absolutely did and these guys are idiots and some of them don't even realize how much they're being used by the devil go to psalm 138 psalm 138 and i'm saying all this in love of course psalm 138 verse 2 I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. God has magnified his word above his name, above his own reputation. God has placed his reputation upon the structure, the sound structure of the Bible. If the Bible collapses, God's name collapses. That's what that says. Very important. Very, very important. All right. So those are those ones. I love that. And then Titus 1-2 says that God cannot lie. I love that verse. It's one of my favorites with that one. Okay. And then thirdly, 
The third thing that are destroying Christians, this church age and producing lukewarm Christians, is this concept. God is the creator versus atheism and evolution. Atheism and evolution. And that's why God says where Jesus says he is the amen. That's our point number one with absolute truth versus philosophy. That he is the faithful and true witness. That is the Bible is the source of absolute truth versus textual criticism. And that he is the beginning of the creation of God. In no other letter did he introduce himself as the beginning of the creation of God. Now, this has uh, two different meanings, really, but just basically, he's the beginning of the creation of God. You go back to Genesis 1.1, and what does it say? In the beginning, beginning, God. What is John 1? I love this. Genesis 1, John 1, 1 through 3. Anyone know that one? In the beginning was the word... Oh, no, we're getting mixed up. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And what else does it say after that? You know the next one? All right, let's turn it. Turn it. Go to John 1. John 1. John chapter 1. Reese, why don't you take this one? Go ahead and do three, four, and five. Okay. John 1, 3, 4, and 5. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Okay, so all things were made by him. Who is the him there? Jesus. Jesus. Because it says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same, that Word was in the beginning with God. All things are made by Him, by the Word. And we know the Word is Jesus because of verse 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus is the beginning of the creation of God. Quite literally, He is the beginning of everything. So He is the one that spoke it all into existence. When it says in Genesis chapter 1, and God said, let there be light, that was Jesus. You could read in your Bible, and Jesus said, let there be light, and there was light. That was Jesus in Genesis chapter 1. And in John chapter 1, it tells us that same thing. And then in Hebrews chapter 1, it tells us the exact same thing. That he is the creator by whom God made the world. He made them by Jesus Christ. So the Bible testifies that God is the creator. But yet we live in a day and an age where Jesus has to remind us that he is the beginning of the creation of God. Because no other time in human history has there been such a huge influx of atheism and evolution. And it has gone as far as I was watching a few, uh, actually it was probably about a month, month and a half ago. There was a group, a music group that I really liked back when I was in high school. And I even sang one of their songs at, um, like I was in the ensemble. Um, and, and that was our singing group that you know you trap for and you sing on all year. So I was singing my solo at the end of the year and I did a Cademan's Call song. Anyone know Cademan's Call? Okay, there might be a few. Most of you are like, what? Who's Cademan? Why is he calling? So there's Cademan's Call, all right? So Cademan's Call, I did not realize back when I liked them that they are very, very Calvinistic. Very Calvinistic. And I did not realize that at the time. Calvinism is the false doctrine that God has predetermined everything beforehand, uh, especially when it comes to your salvation, and that God has put a date on his calendar that you will be saved, and there's nothing you can do about it. He shed his blood for you, and all those that are part of the elect, and there's a certain day and a time where you will be saved and you cannot resist it, and you're in God's family from that point forward. You have no choice in the matter. There's no concept of free will. 
So this guy who's the lead singer of Caveman's Call, he believes this. Well, I just saw an interview with him a couple um, months ago that he sat down with a guy and this guy has gone so far into Calvinism that now he is an atheist. Well, think about it. Let's take it to its logical conclusion. All right. So Calvinists, everything is predetermined. There's no free will. And then you continue that line of thinking. Well, if I'm saved, then I have no choice in the matter. And so I can just live however I want, because if God wants me to know the gospel and believe it, then he'll open up my understanding so I'll actually believe it, so I can live the way I want until God deems it time for me to understand. So until that day happens, I'm an atheist, and I'm going to live the way I want for myself until God proves me otherwise. They're not that far disconnected. They're very closely related, very closely related. And so this man who was a Christian... I don't know if he is or not. Only God knows his heart on that matter. Writing songs, Christian songs, encouraging Christian believers in Christian churches is now an atheist and now is causing more confusion for people that follow their music than ever before. And why would other atheists want to hear other Christians when atheists hear about Christians giving up their faith and becoming atheists? It's destroying our credibility. So this whole concept of atheism and evolution is way bigger than you guys just having arguments in science class. It's way bigger. Way, 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 way bigger. The whole purpose of atheism and evolution is to destroy people's opportunity to receive the gospel and get saved. At its bottom line. That's it. That's it. Which is absolutely terrible. Absolutely terrible. So God is the creator, and then you got atheism and evolution. So Jesus had to remind us that he is the beginning of the creation of God. All right. So like I said, we could probably do each one of these points, like, for so long. It's ridiculous. But these are three things that I know are hitting you guys home with where you're at. And so here's what I want to do. I want to spend some time discussing a little bit. And I want you to take some time. Um, you can do it with the person next to you, or you can do it with three people. I don't really care. But there's three things you're going to discuss, and then we're going to chat about it just to close things out. But there are three things that we need to do. Buy gold, buy white raiment, and anoint our eyes with ISAF. So how are we going to do that? Let's do a quick refresher. What is buying gold? We talked about that last week. Thanks. Having faith in what? Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. How can you buy gold? Because we live in a day and an age, in a church age, where we say we're rich, but we're really not. So how can you buy gold? You can read the Bible. Yep. Discipleship, for sure. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So you exchange your own thoughts and your own ideas for what the Bible says. Buying white raiment. What's the white raiment? Yep. Holiness. Holiness and righteousness. And so that means actually putting off the old man. That's Colossians 2. We talked about that last week. Putting off the old man and putting on the new man. And then anointing our eyes with eyesight. What did we say that one was? Believing and obeying the Bible. Absolutely. So when it comes to these three things, I just want you to brainstorm with the person next to you. How are you going to counteract this in your life? How are you going to buy gold? How are you going to buy white raiment and put it on? And how are you going to know your eyes with eyes have? Just take about maybe a couple minutes and do it. Just think of a couple things. Come on. Do it. Start talking. If you need to reposition yourselves, that's fine. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
Okay, all right, so let's talk a little bit about it, and we'll refine some of your ideas, but I want you guys thinking in this direction in the weeks to come. All right, so give me some ideas. What are some ways you're going to buy some gold? Business trip. Business trip. Oh, <laughs> like, no, not business trip. You're thinking wrong. Yeah, mission trip. How would that work? Like, how would that be buying gold for you? It's just like that next step to where after witnessing, like, that's like, you witness around here and stuff, and you can kind of just get stuck. I don't want to say stuck in just the daily, like, mm-hmm. talking to people or whatever, but that's like going to a whole new country. Yeah. And that's like really trusting God that you can actually, like, do something. Yeah, broadening your perspective a little yeah. bit. All right, good. What else we got? Yeah, Jack. Uh, like going way out of your comfort zone to um, evangelize. Like, uh, yeah. Like yeah. Like the base at camp that you never had. So. <laughs> <laughs> going out of your comfort zone to witness. All right, so I like this. So the Bible tells us to go, pray for opportunities, and to go. So if we're going to be obedient to the Bible, because we don't want to submit. Remember, it's top of your study sheet. What does it say? What's our problem? We don't want to submit to the truth. We don't want to yield our lives to the truth. So knowing that the Bible says to go, we step out of our comfort zone to go. Now, what's going to happen when you do that? Persecution. Could have persecution. What else? Resistance. Could have resistance. Success. You could have success. <laughs> if they have questions, what are the questions going to cause you to do? Think. <laughs> to think and to go back to your Bible and to study and to find different answers, which means you're getting back into the Bible. You're going back to them and having more conversations. So... Really, is there a negative outside of maybe hurting someone's feelings or them hurting yours? No. That's really about it. All right, what else? What other ideas you guys got? Increase your reading. Increase your reading. And praying. Okay, good. Yep. Discipleship, like senior high discipleship, because Romans 10, 17, so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Discipleship will help us study God's Bible higher. Yes. The Bible. Yes. And not only being in discipleship, but then being faithful in discipleship. So I think there's a lot of people that are in discipleship that aren't necessarily faithful. Because here's why. Go to Ephesians. And I'm going to show you this passage and then we're done. Go to Ephesians. We hit this today in our staff meeting. And I'm like, oh my word. This is going to be an outline for me at one point. I love this. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. So discipleship is critical because, because look at Ephesians 4. And so it says in verse 11, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and teachers and some pastors and teachers. And here it is. For the perfecting of the saints, there's number one, for the work of the ministry, number two, for the edifying of the body of Christ. The way this is written is that the way the the church structure and discipleship is supposed to work is that you are to be perfected. That's discipleship right there. The perfecting of the saints. That is discipleship. When you are a faithful disciple and you become a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are becoming, you're in the process of being perfected. So you're in the perfecting of the saints for what? The work of the ministry. So the whole point of discipleship is to get you out there and do the work of the ministry. And only when you do the work of the ministry, which means you're discipling and you're evangelizing, can the third thing happen. The edifying of the body of Christ. God's body, Christ's body, cannot be edified until you are perfected, and that means successfully discipled. And number two, 
until you go out and actually participate in the work of the Lord. Until that happens, Christ's body is not edified. It cannot be built up. We can never be unified. So until us here, until we are faithfully discipling and becoming disciples of Jesus Christ, and we're going out and doing the work, we will never have unity in here, ever. It won't work. It's not going to happen. So are we going to submit? Because I think there's things that we value that we should not be valuing. I think there's things that are getting our time that should not be getting as much time. I think there's things that we need to reprioritize a little bit. Because imagine you being the one person is the reason why the body of Christ is not edified. Can you imagine that? That hurt. That would hurt. This is why we're talking about it. We need to talk about some of the things, and I want you to think about your own life. Am I doing that? Am I playing my part? And if I'm not, then I'm hurting the body of Christ. And how can I look at Christ face to face if I'm hurting the body of Christ? And maybe that's the reason why you're not walking with God. You're just not willing to submit. All right, so this is a big problem that we have. We wanted to go through these three points, and we'll talk about another characteristic next week. All right, let's go ahead and pray. God, thank you for our time together this evening. I pray that you would be honored um, through all these things that we talked about and that we would actually submit and obey. So thanks again. Thank you for being so good and just the things in my life that you're just so patient with. And I never want to take that for granted. I never want to abuse the grace of God and uh, really receive the grace of God in vain. So help me, Lord, to remember these things and to be more obedient and just to be very submissive to you and to your word in a day and an age where no one wants to submit to you anymore. Um, They want to only submit to themselves. They want to be their own God, and that's what's going on right now. So help us not to be that way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.